Hi. And welcome to the Scott and Loss Show. We now have a name, don't we? The Scott and Loss Show. We certainly do. Two dicks talking bollocks. Which um, uh, you've known now for four episodes. We uh, Well, this is the first one we've done, Loss, isn't it? Since we actually launched it to the world. It. Uh, yeah, since the original batch was cooked up, this is the second serving. Yeah, and um, yeah, I suppose it went out to predictable fanfare. I'd say, really. I mean, um, it's just I mean, it's amazing to know that anyone is listening. Really, I mean, sure. We we were always kind of doing this for ourselves, but that's that's not to say we aren't delighted by the the notion of others listening. And so, a big thank you to those that are. It does mean a lot, and I'm sure over time uh, we'll gain some traction and indeed more reaction. But indeed. Whatever happens, uh, we're not going to stop, are we, Lars, until we've nothing left to say. Um, Which is basically the same as saying we're not going to stop, isn't it? Yeah, that's because that could take a a very long time. Uh, I'd just like to give a quick shout out to Donna. And uh, if you're you're listening, uh, we we do very much appreciate you, uh, especially as as we know you're you're putting up with the podcast, despite not really being into films that very much. But God bless you, you're listening. So uh, thanks very much. Yeah, and, and I suppose a shout out to Tom which you passed on feedback to us um, around the microphones. Uh, pun not intended. Get it? Feedback. Uh, which we're, we're very grateful of. Uh, it's kind of nothing we didn't already know, but we, we do appreciate it, mate, and it just gives us extra impetus to sort it out, doesn't it? Sort it out. Is that Ray Winston? Deep leg. <laughs> the world's favourite online podcast. <laughs> Listen online. Nah. nah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. In the meantime, uh, you know, hopefully, whilst we get the mics improved or whatever, our remarkable charm will be enough to to keep you listening. Indeed, it'll have to gu- guide us through. I mean, if you can't delineate our dulcet tones by now, you you may never do so. But I'm Scott, so hello once again from me, and, and I'm Lars, and uh, hello from me, and hello to you, Lars. Hello to you, Scott. It's been a while since we did the first batch, as you say. So um, here we are. And um, well, this episode begins a new trilogy, a better trilogy. Um, One of prodigious proportions, as we're now into our official top 10 films ever made. The creme de la creme. (laughs) Those who, that was very scout, I like it. Those who um, have listened so far have essentially heard our 10 to 20 in no particular order. And I feel we'll kind of now have quite a good idea of what we're about, really, in terms of what we enjoy in the world or, or worlds of film. <laughs> nice one. And, uh, I mean, yeah. Sorry, go on. No, no, I, I go. Yes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dominating this intro. I don't mean to. I apologize. Um, uh, I suppose, I'll get you back. Well, yeah, I'm sure you will. Um, <laughs> we've got a bit of a watch list already, Lars, haven't we? But let's not go through those right now, because, I mean, if you have tuned in at this point, Hello. But um, do go back and listen to the, the ones before, because the, mm. we've talked about some stunning pieces of work there. Ten, um, or in my case, 11 films that didn't quite make the cut of the top 10, but, but that were, uh, in fact, I suppose whilst we're on that subject, I just want to issue a second apology there for that, last, <laughs> where I somehow accidentally included an extra honourable mention, which I kind of had to shoot one in to the end, which was unfair, really, on a film like Dr. Strangelove, because... Again, that was one of those I always thought was in the top 10 until... Yeah, especially the, to... the, the last two you, you spoke about were two that I you know, knew were firm favourites of yours. There's a couple of others that I was just like, oh, that's crept in there. So 
for those to be the two that almost lost out was uh, was hilarious. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was ordered kind of arbitrarily. I don't know how. Um, yeah, like I say, one earlier would have been jettisoned, I think, just to keep it at 10, because, yeah, with Nail and I and Dr. Strangelove would have most definitely been in there. Um, so, yeah, I accidentally, in fact, I joked maths would tear us apart last, didn't I? And so my poor mathematics there almost threatened to do so. So sorry to you, Lars. Sorry to you, the listener. That's all right. Sorry to Stanley Kubrick and Peter Sellers. <laughs> assuming you're both listening from beyond the grave yes. and um in the, the great cinema in the sky and um well i'm not sorry am i let's face it i'm not sorry I, I'm, i'll get my comeuppance somewhere down the line in this series i'm sure well so, we're, we're, we can only wait and see right well that's <clears throat> order of business out the way i suppose isn't it Buzz? right okay let's enough get, waffle <laughs> yeah let's get into the fun stuff let's dive right in Right, so maybe you've got a few guesses as to what may appear for each of us in this top ten. Or perhaps, very much like me, you're you're not the type to look ahead and seek out a twist. You prefer to sit back in the in the moment and just let it unfold. So either way, I hope you're comfortable. Let's get cracking, shall we, Lars? Crack on. Do you want to begin? Because I started with the, the mentions, didn't I? So I think it's probably only fair you kick off proceedings this time. Oh, okay. Okay. I like it. I like it. Uh, so in, in slight contrast to, to the way I was doing things before, I'm going to bang straight on with the name and then talk about it because I was trying to do almost like a an, an arty little sort of waffle at the front. And uh, I didn't like it. So this, number 10. It's Silence of the Lambs. Ah, I wondered if you were doing the theme tune when you did that. <laughs> and I was thinking, it sounds like a cross between E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. No, no, so, I was doing the, 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 the chart music, you know. Oh, that was Luz doing the chart music. Okay. Mm, yeah, All see, right. there's, there's my thinking and there's a box. I'm outside of it. Oh, oh. oh. Really, really jovial start to a really sinister film. But yeah, so Silence of the Lambs, uh, it's, it's again, it's a film that I almost feel like, do I speak about it? Because it's, it's so well known. But if you haven't watched it, I mean, by my Lord, sort that out right now. Uh, pause, pause this. This, this. this will be here forever. Pause this. <laughs> yeah. Go and watch it now. Uh, amazing. Uh, I'm, so we're, we're talking about FBI agent Clarice Starling. Uh, she's trying to catch a murderer who's sort of killing and, and disfiguring women. And in order to gain a profile on this killer and also obviously try and uh, catch him, they consult with Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who is, uh, you know, being, being imprisoned for his various crimes. Uh, obviously, people forget it's Dr. Hannibal Lecter, don't they, as well? Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, that's it. it you know, you, you might be a horrific murderer, but, you know, you've still got that. You put that work in. Yeah. They can't take that away. Still got the plaque on the wall. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it is really funny for, for me how a film about one man uh, uh, going on, on a killing spree, that that killer can be overshadowed in a film about his deeds by another killer who's helping to catch him. And, and it is uh, with no doubt that Hannibal Lecter is the, the star of Silence of the Lambs. Uh, I think Jodie Foster, is is a great choice as the sort of the slightly naive young FBI agent who's chosen to to go in and consult with him to to sort of try and get what he can 
at what she can out of him, uh, whilst also uh, Lecter is, is so intelligent uh, and, and so conniving that the pound of flesh that he manages to, ex- uh, manages to extract from her from, from each occasion, uh, unpicking slots, you know, childhood traumas and things like that, sort of watching the, the pain unfurl in her face. Uh, it's, it's a really, some really sort of tense, and I'd say sinister scenes in this film. And again, w- without really giving uh, too much more away, it's, it's yet another cat and mouse game between the FBI and the killer. And uh, also we uh, go deeper into the motivations of uh, Hannibal Lecter himself and to see whether or not he's actually trying to help out or is he trying to further his own means. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole Hannibal Lecter sort of mythology is, is something that uh, really quite resonates with me. Uh, it's something that I know my mum was really keen on. Uh, so she, I wouldn't quite say put me onto it, but we once we started speaking about it and she'd, I think, read the books when she was a younger woman. I mean, I've, I've watched all the films, including Hannibal Rising, which I actually thought was quite good. Hannibal Rising being the, the early years of Hannibal. And uh, when yeah, we do our... Yeah, that, that is kind of he's been revised in slightly different formats, isn't he, down the years in film and things. Mm. Almost like the the Alan Partridge of serial killing. <laughs> <laughs> only you, only you, Hughes, would come out with he's the Alan Partridge of murderers. Um, my, my first offering on this film. Yeah, sorry, I, and that, that's what that's what tells me that you don't know much about it. <laughs> um, yeah, when 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 we should ever come to do our uh, our TV musings, then uh, Hannibal will definitely feature uh, strongly in that. But that's for another day because this is film, and that was Silence of the Lambs. What did you have to say about that? Oh well, boy! Uh, like you say, my knowledge of Hannibal Lecter is quite limited. Um, Silence of the Lambs is the only film actually I've seen. I, I think there was one called Man Eater. I think it was Man Eater. Or something Man that Hunter. came, Manhunter. That's right, that came up before, which, um, but we're talking about Silence of the Lambs, so I'll stop myself there. Um, yeah, it's again, it's a film I've only seen once. I remember it being very, very good. I watched it with my dad, I think, and it was, yeah, it was very clever. Like you say, a really good cat and mouse. Again, that's clearly something that's like a winning formula for you, isn't it, Lars? Mm-hmm, and I can totally understand why. Uh, Anthony Hopkins is superb in it. Very oh, different. Um, so yeah, Doctor Hannibal Lecter. It's safe to say it's very different to Doctor Treves, who I, who we played in the Elephant Man, which I talked about in a previous <laughs> yes. episode. Very different animal. I I don't know if this is true or not. You might know this, Lars. I believe there was actually some high tension between Jodie Foster and uh, Anthony Hopkins during the filming, and actually they kept their proximity or you know contact to a minimum. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think it's something I heard somewhere. I don't know whether there was actually tension between the two, but I think I remember hearing something about that he'd got that sort of menacing presence down and that Anthony Hopkins in himself is quite an affable chap. And I think they thought if they mixed too much, it might dispel some of that sort of aura that he'd got. And so um, they kept her away uh, to make sure that, you know, she really only saw him as Lecter rather than as, as himself. Yeah, or maybe he was kind of just doing a bit of a Daniel Day-Lewis and staying in character, you know, just to try and keep her uncomfortable throughout to <laughs> somehow elevate the, the, the performance or the chemistry. Or, I, don't I, was, know. I, was just, I was just thinking you, you meant that he was like eating an extra every now and again. Well, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. 
I don't know who was in charge of catering for that film, but yeah. Um, but one thing I do remember is that it ends with a classic quote. It, it, I remember the ending very, very well. It's at the train station. Oh yeah, uh, and and a classic quote, which is like, "I'm having an old friend for dinner." Mm. And that's about as much as I can contribute, really, to this. It's, I, I need to watch it again. It's going on the list, Lars, along with... Yeah, too, too right it is. I, I almost wonder whether we oughtn't just to watch every film on this list with each other and then report back on our findings. Yeah, we could do, yeah. Well, when we've, we've done film and we go off and do other things, um, then we can maybe return to film down the line once we've actually got through all of these movies. Yeah. Because for, the, for those who are listening, um, you may or may not, you know, film... May or may not be your thing. Sorry, Loz, you mentioned someone. Donna, was it? Yes, yeah, Donna. H- hello, oh, Donna, by the way. Yeah, so, you know, by all means, feedback and tell us what you'd like us to tackle next. And likewise for anyone else. And then we'll... Uh, I mean, we, we can waffle on about anything. So Yeah, you know, I'd be quite feel happy free. To, I'd be quite happy to leave film and even TV for a little bit and do something completely different, whether it's, I don't know, music, gaming, sport, uh, or just something else. And then we'll come back and with renewed vigour for, <laughs> for talking about films or TV. Full of piss and vinegar. Right, my number 10 uh, is a very happy film. It's it's also very much a Christmas film. And, oh, yeah. And when we think about Christmas films, I don't know what you think of, Lars. I think of Muppets Christmas Carol, which I mentioned. It's a Wonderful mm-hmm. Life, obviously. Yeah, yeah, Elf maybe. Do you know what? I don't think I've ever seen Elf all the way through. I, I've never seen it, but the, the amount of people that go, "Oh, Elf! Oh, that's what I like at Christmas." Oh, okay, great. You know, that's yeah, fine. not we casting talked... aspersions across those sort of people, but you know, I and I love Will Ferrell. Just you know, I, I it's not one for me. We talked about just like almost enjoying being in the minority with certain things, and I think Elf is like you haven't seen Elf. You know, mm. what, what's wrong with your brain? Well, that might be a bit overly aggressive, but I um, I haven't seen Elf, and I'd, someday I'll watch it. Yeah, but um, it's not already in in my calendar for the you know no. for this year. It wasn't it wasn't a re- New Year's resolution for twenty twenty one. So it'll happen when it happens. Die Hard, I do consider a Christmas movie, and I'd quite yes, happily watch yeah. that every year. Home Alone, but I'm in the camp that mm. actually prefers Home Alone two. I think Home Alone Ooh. one. I think Home Alone one gets a little bit too much reverence. For me, it's great. It is great. But the talk of it being the Christmas film and things like that. No, I'm about to tell you what the Christmas film is. Uh, <laughs> Please do. And it's not It's a Wonderful Life. That I mean, that is objectively perhaps the Christmas film. No, if you haven't already guessed, Lars, we're talking about Love Actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this And um, back when I was talking about You've Got Mail, I think, I was like, what on mm. earth could beat this for a rom-com? I always kind of thought that was my favourite rom-com, but when we came to sitting down and going through brainstorming and actually trying to get a proper proper considered list together, I realised that this actually tops that, and it's probably the one I could happily re-watch every Christmas, along with any select couple of others, like Muppet's Christmas Carol, obviously. <laughs> obviously. So what I love so much about this film is there's so much going on. that There's like eight or even nine beautifully written individual stories rolled into one uh, d- delicious rom comlet. <laughs> I don't know if that was genius or it's a, a horrible thing to say. I don't know. Um, I think that but, probably defines most of our career so far. Yeah. 
But uh, you talk about an all-star cast, right? I mean, I had to make a couple of notes for this one because there are, like I say, so many individual stories going on and I didn't want to sort of miss any of them. So I'll just whistle them really quickly. You've got newly widowed Liam Neeson and the relationship that plays out with his son. And is it Claudia Schiffer? That, that may, that, I, I can't remember. Anyway, so that's, that's one that's going on. Then you've got newly wed Kira Knightley and the, the best friend of her husband, who naturally was the best man from the wedding, who had kind of always made out that he didn't seem to like Kira Knightley's character by acting kind of withdrawn around her. But in fact, this was because he had actually sort of been in unconditional love with her all along. Almost a bit like it back in school, but like the girl you fancied and you'd sort of make a point of ignoring them almost. It's kind of got that vibe to it. But she she finds out in a beautifully awkward scene when she comes over to view the wedding footage. And then he turns up at her door later in the film in a, in a quite beautiful moment. And her reaction just kind of melts me every time. Yeah, Kira Knightley's got this really cheeky kind of smile that's uniquely her own. Mm. So that's a wonderful uh, strand to this film. Then you've got Prime Minister, played by Hugh Grant, and his assistant, who's played by Martin McCutcheon. And they have this amazing connection. But again, there's this kind of painstaking awkwardness, almost social standing getting in the way of expressing how they truly feel with each other, which is quite a common trope down the years in this type of thing. Pride and Prejudice, Romeo and Juliet, Titanic, they all tackle that kind of class divide. This like sure. in, invisible or almost unwritten constraint that just simply shouldn't be there. Then you've got Colin Firth, who plays a writer who's kind of labouring over his latest piece of work somewhere in France, I think, with his only his Portuguese housekeeper for company. And again, there's a uh, tension in that. This one really conveys that tension. Well, it's wonderfully written, uh, wonderfully awkward, this sort of will they, won't they thing. And uh, without trying to sound cheesy, that, this one has a lot to say about the kind of language of love, really, because it overcomes the actual language barrier that they have, uh, not speaking each other's language properly. And that culminates in a wonderful scene, quite possibly most people's favourite in the whole film. Then you've got Laura Linney and her kind of clear infatuation with their colleague. And it would appear that everyone would know this is, you know, it's a case of everyone knowing but those two. And he seems to reciprocate those feelings. And then tra tragically, family issues kind of get in the way and jeopardise it. Then you've got businessman Alan Rickman. I said, I said this is an all-star cast, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. Alan Rickman, who's in like a long-term and seemingly happy marriage until his kind of flirtatious new assistant comes in. And this, this lust over her kind of gives him the <laughs> dilemma sorry. of his life. <laughs> what was funny about that? It was, I don't know. It was just until, until a flirtatious assistant arrives. <laughs> just tickle me. Sorry, I, I do apologise. No, none taken. This, this is the one that always makes me laugh in the film. And it's clear to see why. I can't remember the actor's name, but I know him as the guy from the BT adverts who plays this kind of foolhardy lad who decides that simply crossing the Atlantic with a backpack full of Johnnies will be the answer to all his misfortunes. And then you've got Martin Freeman, who played, of course, Tim in The Office, and talk about rom-com stuff. I'd love to go off on a tangent about that, but that's not for this episode. And because it's not a film, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. But it may be better than everything else in the world of rom-com, including even this. And it's so hard though, is it? you've got Martin Freeman and Joanna Page, who most people know as Stacey from Barry Island. And they're kind of thrust together, literally, because they're, they're in a softcore porn movie and they're sort of trying to break the ice. And then all of these things happen with the sort of backdrop of Bill Nye, who's like a recovering addict, re releasing a Christmas single. Looks almost like the last chance saloon in his wilting pop career. Wow. 
And so, yeah, there's a lot going on. And somehow this is tied together inside, you know, not too long a running time, I don't think. I don't think it's over two hours. I might be wrong on that. But it's Richard Curtis. I mean, if he came up with all of that, then, I mean, he's as much of a genius as anyone else that will get mentioned today in some ways. I mean, he's a known name to me, but I'm not massively familiar with the other stuff he's, he's done. I should have looked it up. But, I mean, if he wrote all of this, it's just I'm in awe of that because they're all brilliant stories. They're played out so well. And, you know, the way they come together at the end. And of course, I don't want to go into that. But, yeah, when I when I sat down to compile this list and I thought of that film and, and like I really thought of it, I thought, yeah, that this is this is top 10. And, oh. you know, yeah, I mean, it, is it, it doesn't seem like it's something you're too enthused with, Lars, but I'm let, in shock. I'm in shock to be quite honest, um, because you're not you're not a massively sentimental person, but not really, not not what I've found. As I said before, not not at all cold, I wouldn't say, but just you know, for for you to indulge in um, a really soppy sort of film like that. I mean, I'm not not to do it down because, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, I I really enjoy uh, four weddings and a funeral for what it is and stuff like that, and you know, things like the the Vicar of Dibley. Uh, you know that's that sort of stuff and dinner ladies i always used to enjoy so you know it's, it's not that i can't get on of it but number 10 in the top 10 films of all time ever yeah i'm i'm genuinely shocked i'm but, shocked um, that you're also shocked does, if i'm being honest i mean you, you... don't do it as disservice but yeah i'm i'm massively surprised <laughs> i can tell uh, and i'm quite surprised by that i mean you heard me talk about you've got mail. Like, in, was that in the last one? Although I think it was episode three. Yeah, maybe. yeah. And I mean, you heard how much I love that, and and how, you know how much I love a rom com, or at least a good one. Yeah, and, I, I thought that was because you you fancied Meg Ryan, and you quite like watching someone else fall in love with her as well. Well, no. The, well, then there you go. The appearance of this at number ten tells you that I really do love rom coms, and it's not just that my love for Meg Ryan is kind of you know mm. skew, skewing that or making me think otherwise. You've not got Ryan blinkers on. But I just think it, it's perfectly casted as well. This film. I mean, there's there's. I mean, Rowan Atkinson appears in it, and all sorts of others as well in, in their respective cameos. And oh no, I just if you want a film to, I mean, if this film doesn't warm the cockles of your heart, then <laughs> there's there's probably something wrong with your cockles. Right, because I could watch this every year, and I think this is one that I would almost make a point of saving for Christmas. You know, I wouldn't watch it elsewhere in, in the year. I, I'd hope that it was on around Christmas, and if it wasn't, well, then I'll I'll just have to crack out the DVD or the Blu-ray and watch it. Because to me, it's the type of film that everyone should should watch at Christmas and enjoy. No, I have to say it, it's come sort of out of the blue for me that there's so much else going on because I thought, like so many of these films, it's, it's a standard. You know, guy meets girl, they they get on, you know, something happens, it tears them apart, and he's got to make a decision. Is it love or is it this or is it that? And there's a child involved who I believe is Nicholas Holt, who went on to star in Skins and uh, for a period of time played Beast in the uh, the X-Men films. But but yeah, other than that, I, I didn't think there was any further sort of plot to it. No, there's so a lot it, going on. I mean, mm. an awful lot going on. That's why that rum cumlet, you know, the more I think about that, the more I think I've, I've you know, accidentally landed on a, a stroke of genius I, with that analogy. Yeah, accidental genius, as ever. Yeah. No, and, and also the other, well, the other, there's all sorts of things that I probably haven't said, but the fact that there's there's so many things going on and it's it's somehow squeezed into a conventional running time, 
So there's limited time for you to actually see these characters and get to know them. And, and the way it uh, switches between these stories is really well handled. So I guess, you know, if you're divvying it up, as it were, you really don't get that much time with these characters overall, maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes or something. And the pathos that's, that's managed to be packed into that amount of time and how much you really feel for these characters. It sounds like you haven't watched this film, Lars. Am I right no. in thinking so? Good God, man. Okay, right. Well, that's going on the list. I can, I can tell I'm going to be kidnapped and forced to watch that. Um, but Well, maybe not quite that extreme. But Just if, if I, be I, gentle. If I, I had to resort to it, Lars, by Jove, you, you know that I would. But, by um, Jingo. Yeah. Iranu. So, yeah, I've waffled on enough about that film. I love it so much. Uh, and I, I now understand why you're so surprised to hear it and it's because you haven't seen it it's that simple yeah so. yeah <laughs> yeah that that counts for a lot really not not having seen the film yeah <laughs> i don't there's only a few of the ones i've mentioned that you have seen i think yeah yeah I, I, it just goes to show you know we uh we, we've we've gone off in different directions and, and and not even ended up in the same place but i think that's that's what made this this whole uh expedition so interesting I get the feeling when we come to do television, there's going to be a lot of crossover and we'll have to think about how we handle that, I guess, at the time. But yeah, I thought it would transpire this way with film, to be honest, that uh, it's kind of played out as I thought so far. But I'm sure there are going to be plenty of thrills and spills along the way. We've only done our top. We've only done number 10 each year and we've occupied something like 20 minutes. And and, and also, I mean, as as much as you know, Silence of the Lambs is a stark contrast to um, to Love Actually. Yeah. The, the, this next film is once again a, a, a bit of a contrast, and that's The Dark Knight. Okay. The, uh, the, the middle film of the Christopher Nolan uh, Batman trilogy. Now, yeah. I, I like... I, I This was the, the film where I thought, hmm, Christopher Nolan, he's onto something there, that boy. Uh, I, I like Batman Begins, grand. I mean, I like The Dark Knight Rises to a degree. I don't know quite why Bane had to have such a ridiculous voice, but we're not talking about that film, so I'll shut up. There's a fantastic uh, scene in The Trip where they do that. It's in the first episode of Series 2 in Italy. Watch it if you haven't. You'll love that scene, Buzz. Right, okay. it, it, but anyway, please continue. I, I probably, I've seen this and Batman Begins of these two, and I seem to remember preferring Batman Begins. But then I've only seen both of them once, so so I'll shut up and um, I'll. Add. I know the Dark no, I, Knight I, is frequently talked I like about Batman as one Begins, of the greatest Colin. films ever. Yes, yeah. For for, for me, it is a, uh, an an immortal attempt at a, um, a comic book film. It's it's probably the best pure Batman film I think there's there's ever been. Now I'm not a devotee necessarily to the Batman comics, but. I mean, and, and there is something to be said to, to Christian Bale's sort of "I'm Batman," which has, has almost become a meme. Uh, and well, it has very much become a meme. But you, you know, <laughs> but basically, one, once again, we're, we're talking. We've, I find myself talking about cat and mouse. In in the 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 first of the the trilogy, we're talking about um, Batman sort of finding out who he is. Uh, he's going off training. He, he uh, joins this cult. Finds out that the cult aren't quite what he thinks that they are sets off to to sort of right the wrongs in gotham after the murder of his parents uh, i think everybody knows about the murder of batman's parents because they do it in almost every single film and then um goes to gotham starts fighting crime 
and, and you know, uh, starts a, a relationship with Commissioner Gordon. Things are going sort of fairly well. And, and so we, we come into the, the dark night and it is, of course, really all about uh, Heath Ledger because Heath Ledger's uh, uh, Joker performance, oh my God, how could I not? Uh, Heath Ledger's Joker performance is, is mesmerizing. I mean, yeah. uh, when, when I, I spoke previously about uh, Daniel Day-Lewis being really sort of consumed by his roles, I think this has almost been spoken about ad nauseum as how much Heath Ledger became the Joker mm-hmm. and, and sequestered himself in a hotel room and read almost nothing but Batman and Joker comics uh, and, and the films and just sort of immersed himself and would do that trademark sort of odd cackle that the Joker was, was uh, often busting out, you know, whilst he was on set and not rolling. And people really felt sort of disturbed to sort of be around him. I understand that um, Jared Leto tried to do a similar sort of thing for uh, Suicide Squad and actually, um, I think, just managed to get that massively wrong. But again, different film. Uh, so basically, yeah. The Dark Knight, it chronicles the rise of the Joker and Batman, you know, struggling to come to terms with a villain that is not necessarily perf- perfectly interested in financial gain, uh, not necessarily even wanting to rule the world, but just to be an agent of chaos, to have that freedom to do what he wanted when he wanted because he wanted to do it. And, uh, you know, Batman's need for sort of structure and, and, and order is, you know, the, the complete opposite of, of Joker. And they are the, the, the two sides of the, of the same coin. It, you know, is often said that the one can't live without the other. And in the, there's a, a, a climax, at, at the climax, I should say, there's a, a comment from the Joker where Batman sort of says, oh, you know, do you, you want to kill me? And the Joker says, you know, why should I kill you when having you around is so much fun? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, there's, I, I, I couldn't possibly do uh, all of the, the scenes in this um, uh, justice. It really is visually breathtaking. I mean, I went to see it in the cinema. Uh, I don't think I actually managed to see it in IMAX, certainly not the first time, but I, I loved it so much. I went back to see it within a fortnight. The, the opening is, is an, an amazing set piece, uh, a bank robbery. Uh, it is just brilliant. It sets up the nature of the Joker so well. There's, uh, um, you know, Bruce Wayne's throwing a party later on in the film. It, it gets uh, ambushed by the Joker and his minions. And there's a really, uh, you know, a horrible, sinister tone to that. And approaching Rachel, Batman's girlfriend, with a knife and sort of, you know, threatening to, to give her her own smile like he's got a smile carved into his face. I mean, I could I could gush on and on about this film. It, it really is yet again one of those films where, if you haven't seen it, I I cannot imagine anybody disliking it. I mean, um, I I know, of course. Uh, well, we know uh, everyone who's listened so far that you're you're a huge Marvel fan, Oz, but I understand this is the DC universe. Is that right? This is indeed yeah. DC. Yes, and I think for me. Uh, I, I did go to the cinema to see this, and I think that was that was probably more because of the name Christopher Nolan than it was the name Batman, if I'm being honest, because I'm a fan of his films, and you know you're going to get something epic um, if his name's against it, Inception, etc. He's done Tenet recently, which I haven't seen. He also mm. did another film, which I won't mention right now. 
Um, <laughs> but yes, I do remember going to cinema to see this. Uh, there was so much hype around it. I had seen Batman Begins and I really enjoyed it. For some reason, I just, I recall this being excellent. And like you said, Heath Ledger, I think mesmerizing was what you said. And I agree tenfold that he is amazing in this. The, the role really consumes him or, or he consumes the role. And mm. um, um, Jared Leto, I mean, I haven't seen that. I know Joaquin Phoenix, of course, has done The Joker lately, but I haven't seen that film. But I understand he managed a similar level of just... That, that is a great film, I have to say. Very, very narrowly uh, missed out on my uh, list. Yeah, I do want to see that. I do really want to see that. And I do want to see this again, because it's it's your it's your number nine. And I'm, you know, taking that seriously, Lars. So, yeah, it's I mean, on the list. To, to... To, to me, really, uh, just to have a, an, another quick nibble at it. Um, it's, you know, action set pieces are, you know, I would say at the very worst, nine out of 10. There's, wow. you know, sort of emotional scenes and, and, and really sort of well-worked, well-earned character moments. Very, very worst, nine out of 10. There's, you know, uh, plot twists and, and, and changes, which, you know, personally, you know, I might not be the most cerebral of people. I'd like to think that I am. But but compared to some people, I'm not. And you know, there's 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 twists and turns again, which I I, I always enjoy. I, I I could not find fault in it really. No, well, I, I really need to see it again because I don't really remember a great deal of it at all. Mm. So perfect. Yeah, that's on the list. We'll have to decide in what order we watch these. <laughs> but yeah, a, 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 an entry that I I suppose I could have. Like I said, I didn't try to predict what you were going to put in mm. because that's if, if you want to liken it. To actually watching a film, like I said in the introduction, I'm not that person. That, you know, I can tell you what's going to happen here, you know. Yeah. Uh, and if anyone says that, I'd be like, shut up. Like, yes, yeah. Shut up. Think whatever you want to think, but don't say it, okay? I'm having my own experience of this film. Indeed. What's the point of watching a film when you already know, you know, the, the, what the journey leads to? Yeah. So I took that very much into this top 10. And, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, wasn't bowled over to hear you say The Dark Knight, but I can understand why. And, and yeah, I look forward to watching it again. Nice. So I suppose in the end, it almost has got the most tradition now of, of uh, bouncing very different, hmm. um, very Genre? different. Well, yeah, just very different vibe back and forth oh. with, with each film. Yeah, tone, probably the best word. We're going to do the same again here, Lars, um, as I br bring things a bit lighter, lighten the mood slightly. <laughs> Although there is some really quite dark undertones for this, which I'll, I'll try and explain as best I can. We're back into the 90s here, 1996, and Jim Carrey, Lars. Uh, we've, uh... Talked about, we've talked about some of his other films, Dumb and Dumber, The Mask, Ace Ventura. This finds Jim Carrey very much fully submerged in like the most absurd of all his absurdity, really. And you know what I'm going to say, it's The Cable Guy. This is arguably his silliest of all of those films. I mean, there's a there's a basketball scene that anyone that's seen this, I won't go into these things, but anyone that's seen this will, rem will remember a basketball scene. They'll remember dinner at medieval times. They'll, mm. they'll remember a bathroom scene in a restaurant with Owen Wilson. They'll, they'll probably remember a karaoke uh, scene, which really unleashes carries prowess in a number of departments actually but all of this is broken up by some some really straight acting too and some surprisingly touching acting especially from Jim Carrey we talked about Eternal Sunshine and I suppose we touched on a couple of his other more serious films in his mm -hmm. more recent years 
Now, this, I think, it was kind of the herald of those or the precursor to those because this was very much sandwiched between the Ace Ventura movies. But you will find, you know, some incredible pathos in his acting that was then seen again, you know, more frequently in his later films. And yeah, I don't want to go into the film too much. It's, it's for those who haven't seen it, it's essentially how or about how what should be quite a straightforward transaction between two strangers ends up becoming much more than that and then subsequently has a huge knock-on effect on both of their lives. And it's Ben Stiller, who, I don't know if he wrote this, I think he wrote and directed this, which I was really impressed with. Even mm. if it was just his direction, I was really impressed with this. And Ben Stiller does feature, uh, he plays two twins that, that kind of permeate throughout the story <laughs> in, a, in a trial. You've got Matthew Broderick is in this, who I kind of always think of fondly as Ferris Bueller. Uh, and then uh, less... Yes. And then less fondly as being in unanimously the worst entry in the Godzilla franchise. <laughs> Jack Black is in this. Owen Wilson is in this, like I said. And if you so, if you get irritated at times by Owen Wilson, then you'll enjoy the, the scene in which he features with Jim Carrey. But let's go back to Jim Carrey, because this is everything I love about him wrapped up in 90 odd minutes. It's criminally underrated. Uh, which is, must be about the 10th time I've said that now, but I really mean it with this film. <laughs> that, and as you know, Lars, th- this is one of the films I've extolled the virtues of the most down the years. Oh, definitely. I and mean, there's probably people out there who just love Dumb and Dumber or Ace Ventura and haven't seen this. And I mean, that's that's criminal. I mean, th- the more I thought about this film, the, mo- the more it elevated itself. And I realised, yeah, this is top 10. Because you'll come to see that there is a mixture of, of tone. And I love um, bold ambitious, heavy-hitting films. I love them, but I wouldn't love them so much if films like this didn't exist as well. Mm, um, here, here. And so my number nine and number 10 in that respect are a very much a light viewing experience. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those films you may go into not expecting anything more than just like another Ace Ventura. But like I said, no, this has the, this has the best of that as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I I like the Jim Carrey silliness in this the most. It just, it makes me laugh the most, I think, along with maybe Dumb and Dumber. But this has this whole other side, which is really up there with Eternal Sunshine and the Majestic in terms of Carrey straight acting, albeit in flickers, like I said, rather than throughout the whole thing consistently. But it excels in both facets and I can't praise it enough. And for anyone listening, I mean, if you haven't seen any of these films, uh, please don't go off and sort of YouTube any of these individual scenes either Lars or I have mentioned because I think mm. their their majesty works in context of the whole film am I right in saying that Lars? Yes definitely. I mean I wouldn't even necessarily want you to go off and watch a trailer for any of these films because very seldom have I thought a trailer has done something justice you know? Or or, or likewise I've seen trailers that have been good I mean the, the trailer for uh, Suicide Squad uh, I think it fooled a lot of people into going to see that film and it was really really subpar let's just leave it at that yeah i mean um i if i was a filmmaker or i'd written a screenplay or i was directing i think uh well you know let, let's in an ideal world you'd have numerous uh, studios clamoring for my for, for the contract and my signature i think i of would course. i would say right well i am absolutely not working with you unless i have the say over what goes out in the trailer i want to <laughs> Like, no, I'm deadly serious. If I, I know, if I, I, I want control over what that trailer is, or I want to sign it off. I want to see it before it goes out, and have the 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 clout to to stop something from going in, or you know, because these days in particular, trailers show far too much. Mm. They they really do, or or they don't show the right scenes, and 
yeah, so I suppose to go back to my point, ladies and gentlemen, I would love for you to have not seen some of these films and for Lars and I's loving uh, depiction of them to then make you want to go out and watch them. But please just go and watch them. Don't just YouTube the Cable Guy trailer. Please don't Google the Cable Guy basketball scene. You know, just, just watch those scenes in the film if you're going to do so, rather than spoiling a bit of it for yourself. Now, I can speak as somebody who has actually done that very thing because I've not watched The Cable Guy. And I know yeah. Scott, you, no, I, I know Scott has always been stunned by the fact that I, I'm a I'm massive Jim Carrey fan. And I mean, uh, Ace Ventura, uh, Pet Detective, and When Nature Calls are two, you know, again, narrowly missed out on my top 10 plus mentions. And I've got both on, on Blu ray and, and watched them at least once a year. And I've never watched Dumb and Dumber. Which again is another one that I know you've always been absolutely dumbstruck as to how I've how I've never watched either of those films. No, I don't think um, I realise uh, you haven't seen Dumb and Dumber either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you love Ace Ventura. Yeah, yeah. Oh. With with a burning passion. Um, oh, I mean, uh, there's a collective side that has gone round Spotify and YouTube right now. But we're we're here to be honest, and and honesty is is you know what will set us free. Oh, by the way, while I'm, on, uh, while I'm on the subject of Spotify and YouTube, um, I, I, am an, I am to understand that the podcast is also now available elsewhere on Google Podcasts and a few other things. So I don't know what your preferred format is. Obviously, you've listened to it on YouTube or Spotify, I think, so far. But yeah, it's now available on a bunch of others. I'll find out what. It's not very professional. <laughs> me, is it? And if, if iTunes is your thing, let me know and I'll stick it on there. But I haven't done so far. But know, know this, if iTunes is your thing, then I don't like you. All right. There well, you go. Well, Plain and simple. Loz's thoughts do not re- represent the <laughs> the collective thought of the Scott and Loz show. No. But there you go. <laughs> I don't particularly like iTunes, but I do like Apple. I, I think they're, they're the, the UX with iOS and um, Macs is just better. Maybe we'll we do are. a podcast. Well, no, it's, there's, there's, it's futile us doing a podcast now on, um, <laughs> on, I don't know, phone manufacturers. Yeah. Or what's the best top 10 operating systems? Yeah, yeah. Um, Apple or Android. Yeah, unless I cut this bit out and then we do surprise people with that. I don't know. So anyway, to, to bring us back back on. Uh, yeah, we're back on back on the freeway. All right. So that's um, the cable guy of my number nine. And uh, last, we're now into your number eight. Wow. Number eight for me. (sighs) It's Pulp Fiction. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, we've, we've talked about, you know, some, some all-star casts before, but I mean, John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Bruce Willis, Tim Roth, Ving Rhames, Numa Thurman, just to name a few, Mm. really. Uh, (laughs) I mean, uh, again, I'm almost, embarrassed to talk about it because it's 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 such a classic film but at the same time you know there's there's bits of it that have sort of appreciated with age i when i first uh watched it i wasn't aware of of of, i just was about to whop out a massive spoiler then which i've i've redacted that myself you're welcome this Uh, is one of those films you probably assume everyone's seen by now but but it's probably better to, to not assume that We've we've started that way, so we'll end that way. Yeah, but yeah, but basically, there's there's a, a, a character, and in in the course of the film, that character gets murdered, and then is shown on screen afterwards. And I think when I was first watching this film, 
that my mind uh, sort of glossed over the fact that the character had been killed and, and, and just assumed that it was he was fine, you know. And I think that's really, really one of the interesting things about Pulp Fiction is it's not a linear film. The start is not necessarily the start. The following scene from the, the scene you're in does not necessarily have to knit together. Mm. It's a, a collection of stories that sort of interweave with some shared characters and some not shared characters. Um, and I think that, you know, that classic sort of Tarantino dialogue, uh, you know, sort of realistic and then almost sort of like hyper stylized somehow at the same time, how, uh, you know, Samuel Jackson and John Travolta can make a conversation about the McDonald's in Amsterdam versus the, you know, the McDonald's in America and, and what they call this, that and the other and on the menu. Uh, is 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 you know frankly mind blowing in, in its way, uh, and you know a young Bruce Willis who hadn't really found his way up until then has yeah. has a big part to play. I mean, what film? Um, what, uh, what year did this come out? Well, I, can't, I can't remember. The, this like, is 1994. 1994. Okay, I, I don't know why I had 90 in my head or something. Yeah, 94. Well, you've joined the 90s fan club with this one. Oh, definitely, because there's a there's a lot of Tarantino films that I've got a lot of time for. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people who've got a, a lot to say about Reservoir Dogs. It, it's, it's, this is the, 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 the one for me of the classic Tarantino. Um, you'll see what I mean uh, in, in possibly future selections. But uh, for now, I'll, I'll leave it with Pulp, pulp Fiction. It, it's, it's lots of mini classics brought together by shared characters. I, I really I hadn't seen a film that wasn't linear before. I hadn't seen a film that, you know, wasn't just one person and their story really because i i, I was you know had, had watched pulp fiction as a fairly young man so um you know it, it really sort of uh in, in left an imprint on me and i you know it's just cool i know it seems kind of a lame thing to say oh it's, it's cool but that's the overriding factor of it is you know that the people in it are cool the 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 not necessarily saying that the people killing people is 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 cool but yeah you know the the people in it are cool and it's it's a really interesting perhaps it's a a, a world far away from my own uh, which captured my um my imagination but yeah it, it, it just um zips along a fair old pace and you, you know every part of it seemed to it, it draw me in just a little bit more i think that this is classic tarantino isn't it and yeah, you know, you're talking about the old star sort of lineup of it. Well, I mean, you can sort of add the name Tarantino to that, can't you? Because I think yeah, that that's probably what brought a lot of people on board, you know, to to, to act in that film. I I can't really remember the the order of his films, you know, but this this is kind of what you consider classic Tarantino. There may have been a bit of a shock to some way back, and I think episode one, when I named Inglorious Bastards in the mentions list, and I said, well, this is the only Tarantino film I'm going to talk about. Mm. and that sounds like I don't appreciate Tarantino or that I maybe haven't seen many of his films but no of course I've seen Pulp Fiction I think it's brilliant of course it's brilliant yeah um, <laughs> I think it's just yeah me personally obviously I've found things that I just kind of prefer all things considered but yeah I mean this is incredible the, the unanimously recognized as an incredible piece of work and you talk about kind of the the different pathways that kind of intertwine that mm. i believe is called a, a portmanteau i think that that's the technical term ah. for that process of writing with these three individual 
narratives that, or in this case, I think might even be more than three, I can't remember. But I'm sort of thinking of Black Mirror, who, who do it on mm. two occasions masterfully. And so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, I'm a fan of Black Mirror, therefore, you know, it's clear that I do appreciate things that are dark and gritty. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, maybe the fact that I've talked about the likes of Love Actually and The Cable Guy so far might, might make you think that I'm just not that way inclined when it comes to film <laughs> or whatever. No, I, I love stuff that, that's that's dark, that's violent, that's gritty, that's got those those things, um, not obviously for the sake of it, but with mm. Tarantino, I think he's set himself apart from many other filmmakers for incorporating those themes, but it just being a masterfully weaved together. And um, yeah, Reservoir Dogs, he mentioned as well. He's um, he's just a brilliant filmmaker. And the fact that he only appears once for me, and that's outside of the top 20, is in no way disparaging to him, as far as I'm concerned. Well, again, he only appears twice for me, and he's one of my uh, favourite directors. Uh, I, I think sometimes he can be in danger of sort of disappearing up his own arse a little bit. But then, at the same time, you've got to admire any man who's made as much money as he has and has sort of gone, well just like being a rocker you know i'm going to make music that i like and if you like it then that's cool but i'm making it for me and i think that's that's very much this his approach to filmmaking and I, I can only salute that that's incredibly brave and i think that's it's that sort of vision that will see us to the future yeah totally agree totally agree uh, I've probably got nothing else to add on Pulp Fiction, really. It's a, that's a film that I've really only seen, I think, twice. I don't own it. Mm. Um, I can't remember the last time I watched it. I think it must be at least five years ago, if not longer. So uh, there's a lot that I can't remember about it. Ergo, I can't say too much about it other than just the tone and the, the timbre, which, of course, I can remember um, because I think that's one of the first things you would remember about that film. Mm, indeed. Well, like, like we've said previously, you know, I, I think m almost every film is better just experienced. Uh, yeah. I really wouldn't want to, to sort of put on much more than that because, it, you know, it, each film has its own, you know, a, a, each little story has its own little compartmentalised little sort of goodies to it. And to spoil almost any of them is, is to take the shine off the movie. Um, yeah, go and watch it. Go and watch it, folks. <laughs> for goodness sake go and watch it if you haven't already what on earth have you done with your life so far to, mm. to not have at some point seen this disgusting <laughs> my number eight film of all time is a film that came out in 1982 and it's a film that's based on an album which came out in 1979 which is Pink Floyd's The Wall. Uh, For me, I mean, like, again, this will come up down the line when we get to music, but The Wall, I think, forget, I don't know, Thick as a Brick, or The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, or, or even forget some of Pink Floyd's other albums. The Wall it is my favourite concept record of all time. And I suppose I've got to discuss the, the story of the album a bit, because, of course, that's what inspired the film and what the film's based on. Sure, but sure. I suppose I'll try and hold back on the music so much with this and just speak more about the film side. Of it. And then, yeah. And then when we come to discussing albums, spoiler alert, I'll be discussing this again there. So <laughs> <laughs> basically, uh, the, well, the story of this album, it, it's split in two. It's a part one and part two. And there are very two d distinct parts, disc one, disc two. And it follows the, a character called Pink, who is loosely based on Roger Waters. 
And in the film, Pink is played by Bob Geldof, would you believe it? And it follows him and his upbringing. So uh, we, we all, we're all kind of aware of the, the concept of the wall and we're probably all aware of the song, Another Brick in the Wall. And that is just one brick in the wall, but a lot of part one is to do with individual bricks in the walls and what, what or wall, and what they basically mean are different sort of traumas or insecurities in his life that, that builds up this proverbial wall around himself and he shuts himself off from the world. He lost his father in the war for one, uh, and then he kind of went, ended up being sort of cosseted, mollycoddled by a possessive mother, which is another kind of brick, if you like, that's explained. Then he gets a bit older and has his first romantic experiences and things. Then he becomes a well-known musician. And the, the, we talked about the, the, you know, the touring life and, and drugs and things like that. And so these all occupy these kind of metaphorical bricks in a wall, which he builds around himself and shuts himself off the world. And that's kind of the end of part one. Part two is what happens from there with him now all but just disconnected entirely from the world uh, with almost seemingly no, no way of coming back from this, from the brink of despair. And part two is where you have equally famous, comfortably numb, for example. I mean, who doesn't love that song? If I was, if I was going to do a karaoke, I think I'd choose that song, you know, <laughs> because because for one, it's got two brilliant guitar solos in it. So I'd, you just you'd get to, and also I know the lyrics off by heart, so it'd be easy for me to do that, and I'd get sure. to air guitar twice, David Gilmour <laughs> style. So uh, yeah, that would if I ever karaoke, I've never karaoke. That that's the song I'd do. So. Anyway, <laughs> that's a bit off course, off piste. The film is kind of fragmented because that's how the album works with the lyrics. It darts back and forth in time. And so the film does that in keeping with the lyrics. And a special mention must go to the art style. This is something that a lot of people will think of first when they think of this film. There are a couple of animation sequences from Gerald Scarf, which are incredible, incredible. There's one called Goodbye Blue Sky, which is early on, and that's kind of to do with the futility and barbarity of war. Later on, you've got a track called Empty Spaces, which he, again, lends his artisticness to, and that's a bit more to do with gender and power, and then goes in the opposite about commercialism. And then towards the end of disc two, act two, whatever you want to call it, there's an epic piece called The Trial, where basically the character of Pink, the protagonist, kind of confronts all of these things, and it's done in very much a trial style of setting. And so he confronts all of these insecurities and bricks. And it's, oh, it, it's so theatrical and operatic. Mm. Um, it's no surprise that Roger Waters went on to do an opera called Say Era, which I haven't seen, but it's based on a French story of some kind. And I'm not surprised someone signed him up to do an opera just based on the trial, which is this 10 minute piece, I suppose, in the film. But I guess, yeah, to, I just want to go back to Gerald Scarf really, because it's some of the most stunning animation I've ever seen. I mean, he's, he's a very well-known artist. And I think people talk about this film being one to watch when like high in some shape or form, largely, yeah. because, largely because of those animation scenes which were done by Gerald Scarf. And if you watched them, you'd see what I mean. I mean, I, I have actually watched this film in acid and I've watched it like really stoned as well. But to be honest, I've never appreciated this film more than when I've been totally sober and just locked into every little thing that unfolds elsewhere. So I can comprehend every kind of nuance of which there are many in this film. It's a very deep, dense piece of work. Um, mm. And so, you know, it helps to, to have your brain available to formulate these many different opinions and, and theses 
about certain things which may or may not be happening. And I think that's very much everyone involves intentions with, with say, Roger Waters, who wrote it in the first place, uh, and, you know, everyone involved in directing, making it, etc. So Pink Floyd, The Wall, absolutely. Uh, one of my favourite albums of all time, one of my favourite films of all time. And I suppose you'd call it a musical in some ways, because, of course, it features all of the songs and even a couple extra that are thrown in, because this came out three years later. And... Um, I talked about like The Lion King as a musical, of course. Mm -hmm. And then you'd look at other classics, Rocky Horror Picture Show. La La Land, I've got a lot of time for. I thought that was great. What, <laughs> seriously, it's really good. Walk the Line. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard it's very good. Just um, just the way it, it came out, it just made me to giggle. Yeah, fair enough. Walk the Line. If, have you seen that last? Uh, no, I haven't, but um, that's, heard that's, things. That's Joaquin Phoenix again, isn't it? And uh, spoiler alert, Joaquin Phoenix will be mentioned at some point later too. Um, Fantasia, again, that's, you know, a Disney classic. And even like West Side Story, you know, there are these classic musical films down the years. But I think for me, Pink Floyd The Wall is the, the opus, the, the one that resonates with me the most. I discovered Pink Floyd as a band when I was sort of 17, 18 in sixth form. And the discovery of them and another band called Opeth at the time was incredibly influential. Changed my life. It genuinely changed mm. my life. Um, it opened up in like two new worlds to me, which changed me as a person and so I've gone through a real experience with Pink Floyd down the years and it's my favorite Pink Floyd album and I think I prefer to listen to it as an album but the film does a really good job of, of bringing it to the screen largely because Roger Waters was involved uh, I, I would hope the other band members were as well but Roger Waters at this point <laughs> in, the, in Pink Floyd's career was very much the person in creative control of the band anyway so it's probably unsurprising that he was at the helm for the most part of this. And um, it's definitely got that, that feeling of Pink Floyd. You know, it's not like someone else tries to capture Pink Floyd and they don't quite do it. It very much is Pink Floyd doing a film, you know. Mm. But they're just, they're just working with people who've got experience in that field, I guess, just to help get it over the line without being, you know, two years over budget and et cetera. So, yeah, there we go. Pink Floyd, The Wall, um, a masterpiece. Have you seen it, Lars? No, I, I once again I find Why myself am I saying, surprised? Yeah, okay. mm, quite. I mean, you know, I I remember you know talking with Ace when you you guys had been to see uh, Roger Waters perform live, and um, I'd, I'd pretty much heard back from the pair of you that it was just practically a religious experience. Yeah, I didn't even need um, to say that. Yeah, it's probably the best gig I've ever been to. Yeah, I saw Roger Waters <laughs> perform this at the O2 Arena, formerly Millennium Dome, and. Oh, I mean, just <laughs> look at the most grand, uh, grandiose spectacle. Stunning. They actually built a wall during disc one, if you like. A wall was actually constructed between the band and the audience. And then um, projection mapping was put onto that wall in incredible, like, fidelity. The, the, the quality of it was stunning. The very first song of the evening, a plane came over our heads and crashed into the stage. I mean... But it's just this sounds like something out of a dream, but no, it happened. Uh, I've even got the Blu-ray to prove it happened. Um, <laughs> and I think they they filmed largely at the gig we were at because one of them, David Gilmore himself, appeared at the top of the wall to play one of the solos in Comfortably Numb. But yeah, it's um, maybe that's something we should watch, Luz, as well, the, the Blu-ray of the gig, because it's incredible. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, being your best friend around the time that you you, you started listening to Pink Floyd, I, I I can't say that I'm not aware of Pink Floyd. Although um, 
as much as I've appreciated some of their work, it's not really a band that I've listened to much in my own sort of downtime. Uh, geniuses as they are, undoubtedly. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I find myself a little bit embarrassed because um, I, I can't really add anything to, to a, a really genuine and, and, and impassioned take there. So uh, I don't, mm. don't want to sort of fumble on blindly. I've seen, again, uh, components of The Wall and some of it really intrigued me. And like you say, some, some really interesting uh, anima- animation and uh, animation style and some really interesting themes. And uh, I think themes probably covers it, actually. <laughs> but yeah, everyone, yeah, everyone um, thinks of the likes of Another Brick in the Wall as a song, you know. And of course, it was never really... Pink Floyd are very much that band where they, they, they don't like the notion of, oh, you've got to, you've got to bring a single out. Well, no, it's taken out of context here. I don't just want to put that out to the world when the, the lyrics are out of context and, you know, they kind of had to with that and it ended up being a, a massive hit, you know, one of their biggest. But And it has got probably David Gilmore's best solo in it, to be fair, even better than Come To Be Numb. But so most people are aware of that song. But obviously when you listen to the album as a whole, or especially when you watch the film, it puts it in context. And there's another brick in the wall, part one, two and three. I think it's part two was the one that actually was the single. But uh, it's it's very harrowing at times. This film it, it's very dark at times. Mm. Um, it's got moments of incredible despair. Uh, it's not light viewing. It's not. Um, I don't think it's. Uh, it's not really got a single happy moment that I can think of. If I'm being honest. <laughs> but then you would, know, would, would I... watch watch this and then go off and watch the Cable Guy. You know. <laughs> would I be unfair to say that this was? perhaps a uh, cultural precursor to Clockwork Orange? No, Clockwork Orange came out earlier, I believe. And, ah. uh, at least I think it did. But but you get where I'm coming from with that. The, the, there might be a touchstone between the two. I think that I'd call the, the their connection tenuous at best. Okay, okay. Yeah, having seen both films numerous times. Both, both have the elements of sort of a, a, a situation or... Um, indeed an organization trying to deal with someone and their problems in a way that suits them better far better than it does the person with the problems and that sort of thing you know well i guess they're similar in the sense that there are two distinct parts where it, in which the the protagonist is kind of uh, undergoes incredible change and then part two is yeah a, a very much like another cubic film which is full metal jacket you know that that is a film of two hearts if ever i've seen one and again that's it's another one i've not seen <laughs> <laughs> I well, I'll stick it on the list. But uh, I've already mentioned Full Metal Jacket that came up in um, in my mentions, and then of course Doctor Strange. Right? But will I mention Stanley Kubrick again, Wells? Well, uh, probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I, yeah, I'm glad I got to discuss the wall there, and we've yeah we squeezed that into episode one of this. Well, I think to be honest with you, may well end up being a, a quadrilogy, Lars. Yes. Yes. We'll have, to, like we'll have to just see. We, we've got through three each, haven't we? 10, 9, yeah. 8 each. I don't know. We'll just see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. But I think this is a good place to end it. We're, we're over the hour mark, I'd say. Indeed. Well, uh, we'll so, draw a line under that and call it quits. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed us talking about our 10, 9 and 8s, respectively. We've enjoyed talking about them. Lars and I are going to uh, break and then return, I think, immediately, aren't we, to resume? Certainly are. All right. Well, again, thank you. And... Uh, Bye. Bye. Chip, 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 chip.